My guest today is Taylor Schumann. She's the author of When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. That will be published on July 20th with InterVarsity Press. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Could we start by just uh, outlining the basic thesis of the book? There's kind of two distinct parts of the book that um, are are integrated in the in the book itself, but but they're uh, two separate parts. I don't know if you would talk about each part or just the argument as a whole. Yeah, but how would you characterize the thesis of the book? Yeah, so the first thing to know um, is that I'm a shooting survivor. I was wounded in a, a school shooting back in 2013. And so the first part of the book um, could most likely be described as, as more memoir, um, memoir nonfiction. And, and so I, I really share what I went through um, during the shooting, in the immediate aftermath, sort of what that grieving and healing process looks like um, after you experience gun violence and, and kind of sharing the ways that um, that affected my life and, and my family's lives and how God was with me during all of that and, and really healed my heart and used that experience to shape me and, and my faith. And the second part of the book is sort of a, an overview of what gun violence can look like in America, the the types that affect us the most, and a little about the ways that, that we could approach gun violence, things that could be helpful. We talk about laws, community interventions, and the ways that the church can pay attention and talk about gun violence and see it more as an issue of faith rather than an issue of politics. And yeah, just kind of exploring, exploring how the church maybe has missed the mark when it comes to gun violence and how we can do better and how we can really aim to reduce all the suffering we're seeing because of guns in America. Uh, how do you think the church has missed the mark? Yeah, I think that this is partially because this sort of way of our country and the way things work is that big issues like guns, um, like other things, you know, abortion, all sorts of things, they are, they have to be political. That's the way we handle them. That's the way we create laws and regulations. And the church has a way of wanting to stay clear of, of politics often, um, especially when it's a topic that, um, is real controversial and, and might ruffle feathers and, and might make people some mad. We're sort of picky and choosy in the, in the ways that we, we decide what should be talked about and what should not be talked about. And so like, even after I was shot, like the words gun violence were never uttered at, at my church, even when what happened to me was, was talked about. Um, I had never heard it discussed in church until a few years later when we visited a Methodist church for the first time. And I realized, oh, wow, some churches do talk about this. Like some churches do see this as an issue of faith and an issue where the church can be vocal. Um, and so I think instead of finding ways where the church can say, this is an issue of faith, this is an issue where we see 
um, our responsibility to care for our communities and care for our neighbors who have been affected by gun violence, we tend to say, well, this is a political issue. Um, we don't see how we fit here. And, and so we, we've kind of stayed clear. Um, but I, I think there really is a place um, for the church in this conversation. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you see it as an issue, uh, like a, a pro-life type issue? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there's no way to look at the numbers, look at the ways that gun violence affects generations of people, um, our marginalized communities, the way that businesses function, how communities are torn down and and not see it as as a pro-life issue, not, not see it as an issue that affects the way people live and survive and thrive. Um, it's, yeah, I, yeah, it's, to me, it's absolutely a, a pro-life issue. What, so one of the, um, maybe it's because I, of my cast of mind uh, sort of inclines me to enjoy arguments. Yeah. Um, one of the more entertaining parts of the book for me was where you went through some of the arguments against gun reform mm -hmm. and just sort of uh, responded to those arguments. Maybe we could run through a few of those. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So, yeah. So one of the arguments against gun reform is, well, look, the people who are using guns to do bad things are criminals, right? So they're not going to obey gun laws. So all you're doing is taking guns away from law-abiding citizens mm -hmm. or making it harder for law-abiding citizens to get guns. The criminals are going to ignore the gun laws anyway. So um, gun reform is, is at best useless and at worst, it actually uh, is just making it more difficult for law-abiding citizens to protect themselves. What do you say to that? Well, I'd say first, it is true that criminals will find ways to get guns if they want to use them to commit crimes. Um, but second of all, that doesn't mean we should make it easier for them to get them. And third, in fact, many of the ways that criminals get guns, steal them, buy them, whatever, is the result of irresponsible actions by legal gun owners. We have like a huge problem in America where thousands and thousands of guns are stolen out of cars every year. Um, we have an issue where even firearm dealers aren't required to report all the thefts that happen in their stores with guns. Guns are left places, you know, and, and stolen. The national background check system has stopped. I think just last week they updated their numbers over 4 million gun sales to prohibited buyers. So the background check system does work and there are gaps, but we know it works. That's 4 million guns that weren't sold to people who shouldn't have them. So some criminals do go through <laughs> the legal channels and as long as they are, and, and we know that works, um, you know, why make it easier? Of course, criminals will find ways to get guns if they want them, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to be more responsible as, as responsible gun owners to make sure that we're not the reason that those guns are are out there, and you and you make a point in the book as well about decreasing the overall supply. Yeah, which yeah. would make it more costly to get guns, even uh, illegally. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basic economics, folks. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's true. And there, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that, you know, fines for firearm dealers who, um, who lose a certain amount of inventory or don't report their numbers. There's, you know, taxes on those dealers. It, it, it's not always something that has to, because a lot of people's concerns is like, well, it's, it's my right to own a gun. So it shouldn't be so hard or expensive for me to get one, like if I can't afford it. Um, but there are ways to put those fines onto the, you know, places that, that should bear, you know, the burden of your irresponsibility. Yeah. Okay. So this, so this gets to, I, 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 as I said, I'm going to talk about these uh, arguments, right. But you've just touched on something uh, that I think, um, I don't know. I don't know if this is provocative. It shouldn't be. (laughs) Uh, um, So you mentioned the claim that it's our right to own Mm -hmm. a gun. And of course the second amendment, I mean, there are, there are interesting uh, questions of interpretation around sure. the Second Amendment, right? But let's uh, let's just stipulate that yes, the Second Amendment gives um, individual citizens the right to uh, bear arms for whatever purposes they like, uh, personal protection, recreation, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. There are Christians, right, who say, "Well, look, the Second Amendment gives me the right to own guns," as though like that's the end of the conversation as though the second amendment is our Bible, right? Yes. Um, so I wonder, again, I mean, this, this is, I'm, I'm, I don't mean, I, I don't think this should be provocative, but I realize that probably it is. Um, what if as Christians, like, what if we say like, yeah, maybe, maybe we need to rethink the second amendment, right? Yeah. Well, what yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, people can't see my face, but I am making a face that's like, yes, maybe we should do that. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We kind of have, and I grew up with this, we have this very like strong image of perfection of the people who wrote our founding documents and wrote the Second Amendment. You know, we've like really elevated them to this like godly place of like all knowing and, you know, foreseeing the rest of time. And when in fact, like, you know, better than I do, like the founding documents of this country were full of errors and flaws. And that's why we, we have amendments in the first place is that we had to fix a lot of the kind of nonsense that, <laughs> that was included. Like we are humans. And as Christians, we know we are not perfect. Like God is the perfect one and, and we serve him because he is perfect. Um, we do not know everything. We are not perfect. We are flawed. I mean, for heaven's sakes, like we, the documents of this country saw black people as three fifths of counted them as three fifths of people. Like, and we've, we have to spend years and years correcting our mistakes. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to say, Hey, maybe the second amendment wasn't perfect. And maybe the people who wrote it didn't know what guns could become and what ammo could become and how people would use these things in, um, in the year 2021. Um, we just didn't know. And I think it's okay to say, wow, like, yes, we do have the second amendment and and there's some value there, but what does that really mean for now? And how is this being used? And is there a way to reconcile this right that this second amendment gives us with how it functions in society? Cause these are two different things. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't think, like you said, it shouldn't be so controversial to to look at it that way. And then, you know, I, I think that's where it really comes into play. Like if you're a Christian who lives in America, are you first looking at your identity through the lens of being an American or being a Christian? 
because just because we're given this thing um, doesn't mean that it's wise to exercise it or to exercise it in certain ways. Um, so, you know, how are we, what lens are we looking at this through? Right. And, and, and even if we, even if we were to say, um, yeah, the second amendment was, uh, brilliantly conceived when it was written. Right. Um, I mean, the guns they're working with at that point are like muskets, right? Yeah. So, so let's say, great, let's keep the second amendment. Like everybody can have muskets, you know, <laughs> whoever wants a musket, you got it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cause it takes like what, 90 seconds to load one of those things for a yeah. single. Yeah. One bullet at a time. Yeah. Yeah. That touches on another, uh, argument that you address in, in the book about, um, language and sentiments around assault weapons. Mm. Yeah. Could you say something about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that if I talk about assault weapons, people who are very pro-gun are going to say, oh, there's no such thing as assault weapons, like, available to citizens. Like, a very popular comeback is, like, if you talk about AR-15s, you know, people will say, well, it doesn't stand for assault rifle, you know, and and kind of quiz you on what an assault rifle actually is. And um, it is true that a very specific type of assault rifle is not available um, for like your average citizen to buy. Um, but the types that we do have, like an AR-15, um, was designed to look like an assault rifle. And when it was marketed, it was marketed as an assault style rifle. You can look up like guns and ammo covers and, and magazines um, from that time. And they all say on them, you know, assault assault weapons, assault rifle. They wanted them to look cool. They wanted them people to think they could, you know, look like a military man or a policeman or, or whatever this image is. Um, and, and so, and that's, that's why people liked them. And that's why people started to buy them. So it's sort of a disingenuous argument to say, well, it's not really an ass assault rifle. Well, if it's marketed as such, and it's meant to look like one, it's meant to feel like one in your hands, then I think that like, it should be easier to kind of decide that um, maybe this was meant to uh, function in, in the same way. And, and, um, you know, if you look at a list of, of mass shootings in the past, however many years you want to go back, you'll find that the majority of them, an AR-15 was used. Um, they can be modified in a lot of ways, like what we saw happen in Las Vegas, um, to function as uh, a gun that shoots, you know, bullets in succession and not one after another. And, and thankfully, we did see um, some headway made with, with banning that accessory, like a bump stock, um, a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, you know, people really like to pick and choose when it comes to a conversation about, about assault weapons. So, so, um, could you unpack that a little bit, like the details there? So it sounds like, um, the, the there's a, there's a delineation between what is, what is technically yeah, an yeah. assault weapon versus something that isn't does it have to do with the rate of fire yeah so an assault weapon would be a gun that um most commonly is used like by the military some police departments do have them where you can kind of hold your finger down on the trigger and bullets will just keep firing so like the ar-15 you have to pull your finger on the trigger each time you want to shoot unless you had one of these accessories like a bump stock that um uh 
change the gun's function and could shoot in succession, which is how we saw so many people shot and killed um, in the Las Vegas shooting. Um, so, so that's why people will say these aren't really ass- assault weapons, um, but you know they're designed to look like them and and they were marketed that way in the beginning. And we've only kind of seen a shift in that um, in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Um, yeah. Um, so another, another argument against gun reform is that, um, uh, well, we need guns for personal protection, mm-hmm. right? We're, um, or, uh, or for safety. Um, and you point to some statistics on page 173, or at least in the advanced copy that I got, it's page 173, yeah. uh, of, of the book. Um, could you talk a little bit about the argument that, uh, well, guns make me safer? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, 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 the connection in my mind between this point and what we were just discussing was, you know, the thought, um, surely someone doesn't need like an assault style weapon for like hunting. Right. right? Um, and for that matter, I'm not exactly sure um, why someone would need that for personal protection either. I mean, unless you unless unless you think that you know an army is coming for you or something. Um, right. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe could you talk a little bit about th- this notion that guns make us safer? Yeah. Um, in the '90s, in the early '90s, there was a study done um, by some researchers in Florida that was published and, and talked about kind of this astronomical number of uh, instances of defensive gun use in America every year. And um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like a million times guns are used every year to defend people. And so the National Rifle Association really kind of latched onto that and started saying, you have to have a gun to defend yourself. You, It wasn't sort of like uh, you might need this gun to protect yourself. It became, you will need a gun to, if you want to protect yourself and your family, and this will make you safer. Well, that study was widely discredited after that. The numbers were like actually impossible for that to happen based on crime rates and, and a few other things. Um, so that was discredited, but the damage was already kind of done. And, and this idea that, you know, you weren't safe without a gun, you you had to have one, like an intruder was going to come into your house and harm your family. Um, you know, we, we still believe this today. Um, and it's, it's hard to find good numbers about crimes that didn't happen. You know, it's really hard to like report those types of things and find out exactly what kind of what we're dealing with. But largely no other study or analysis has ever been able to show that that amount of defensive gun use happens every year. What we do know, conversely, is that a presence of a gun in the home makes you three times more likely to die by firearm suicide. Um, that includes anyone that lives in the house, not just the gun owner, um, for women, women who own guns, which that's something that's touted at women all the time, you know, don't be a victim, have a gun, protect yourself. Um, women who have guns, it's more likely that that gun will be used on the woman who owns it, um, to harm them by someone who wants to hurt them. Um, so really, um, and, and children who live in homes with guns are especially unsafe. You know, every day, 22 children are injured or killed. Eight of those, it's unintentional shootings, you know, where a gun is just kind of left around the house and a child can access it, kill their parents, kill a friend, kill a sibling. 
Um, so children are un- unsafe, you know, um, but kind of this myth that guns make us safer is out there. And it's, it's sort of a easy, tangible thing to latch on to in a world that feels scary and uncertain. You know, it's, it can be a really easy choice to say, well, everything feels really scary. And the one thing I can do is, is have a gun to protect my family. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because people like accuse me a lot of using like emotions in my arguments, like being emotional. Um, but you know, when I talk about this specific well, thing, like, you know, what people, men, <laughs> like, like on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, wow. like, Oh, I'm using my, my emotional story and I'm not arguing with facts, but this is sort of the exact opposite, right? Because people are saying, I'm scared. I want a gun. And that's an emotion. <laughs> and I'm saying, I know you're scared and I'm so sorry. You're scared. Like the world is very scary. I am also scared, but I'm telling you that the, the research we have now says you are less safe with a gun in your house and yeah. they don't, they don't care because they're yeah, scared. I, just, I, I don't, I mean, I, this is an aside, maybe we'll cut this out, <laughs> but my, I've always, I thought like, just get some bear mace, like bear mace. If you're really afraid, like, because you're not going to kill anyone, but very yes. probably, very probably you're not going to kill anyone and you don't have to be particularly good at aiming it. Yes. But if, if this is intruding and it has bear mates and they will, they're not going to do anything. So I actually, I can't, I have a, um, an FAQ section of the book that got cut because, you know, my publisher asked for 60,000 words and I send in like 95,000, which is fine. Um, so we cut an FAQ and it's going to be a download, like a free download resource. And I talk about bear mace in there like really yeah there's like research about bear mace versus guns and then the other thing this one day i was like just get bear mace no it's a real thing and like because the other thing too is that and i write you read it in the book i i think it's it's in the part that um we left in but you know about all these times when people think they hear intruders in the house and kill their wife or their kid that's like coming home late or you know up getting a snack in the kitchen like who's safer then, you know, like it's just the risk of this is so low. And yet we have created this whole uh, worldview around it. And there's like yeah. little room for discussion. Yeah. Um, you talk a little bit in the book uh, about the situation of police officers and mm-hmm. the militarization of police and, and how, the culture of, I, I guess I describe it as like a, a culture of uh, escalation around yeah. weapons um, actually makes everyone, including police officers, less safe. I wonder if you might talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so this this idea of kind of militarizing the police, um, it's it's been going on for a while, but I think it really amped up after uh, the start of the Iraq war. So basically the police departments could get um, leftover supplies, um, surplus supplies in the military. So that's when we started to see like local militaries getting tanks and, um, you know, armored vehicles and really intense weaponry. Um, and even back home where I'm from, like I lived in a little town of like 30,000 people and our police department had a tank and, you know, I drive by and we'd be like, what, why do we have this tank? <laughs> like, yeah. I saw, so we're, we just, as you know, we just moved. moving but the town that we're moving from is this small town and i saw one day this like armored 
vehicle. I was like, what in the world? Yeah. What is going? What, what, uh, I, yes. I, mean, I read about this drug bust they tried to do at the at the Burger King in town. No joke. Like they recruited this new police officer and sent her to work at the Burger King to do this big drug bust. And I think like they caught one person buying like in six months, they caught like one person buying one bag of weed or something. Right. And this, <laughs> all these resources that, but yeah, and they have an armored vehicle. Like that's the town that we lived in and they have an armored, like a SWAT team yeah. vehicle. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. And, and so, you know, like the problem is, is we, that this idea sort of like created this vicious cycle, like between police officers and citizens, because, you know, um, when the police officers are acting like everyone is a terrorist, then we as citizens are afraid of, of police and we feel devalued because we're, we're like, well, they think their community is so dangerous. And so then, of course, the community is going to be, um, you know, more afraid of police and, and less supportive of police. And then the police, in turn, are afraid of the community because they're viewing everyone as, as so dangerous. And, um, and, and that's, it's kind of the same with, you know, police involved gun violence. Like, as a police officer, when you know how prevalent guns are in the community, any person you come upon is a potential gun owner, a potential person with the gun. So, of course, you're going to be um, more afraid, more defensive, ready to use your gun than you would be if you didn't have to assume any person you pull over on the side of the road or, you know, fight you have to break up, whatever it is that that person has a gun. Um, and so, you know, people start really talking about defunding the police, abolishing the police and um, what that looks like. And the problem is, is that it's going to be really hard to do that in any meaningful way while seeing crime reduce without confronting guns. Because, you know, with less police, we still have the same amount of guns. And it's going to be really hard to see a decrease in police-related shootings with the same amount of guns and, and kind of that fear that we have. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, what's the problem with police departments having this kind of weaponry or acting in this way. Well, the issue is that police are not military <laughs> and military we have to defend us against foreign enemies, um, you know, to defend democracy, kind of however you view the military and the police are meant to be peacekeepers of our country and to serve the community. And uh, when, when we have this idea that the police are military in our community, um, that view of and role of police officers really changes. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to kind of go back to the idea of police as peacekeepers and um, protectors of the community when the image you have is, you know, an armored vehicle and, you know, M16s and, you know, your police looking in the community like a military. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, this, the, yeah, I wonder if maybe we should parse a little bit the the language around defunding the police because there, um, yeah, people people mean different things by that, and I, and I think people sure. people, um, particularly people who are opposed to any kind of reform in law enforcement, uh, attempt. And now, I mean, perhaps we could have a 
a separate conversation with a communications professional about whether the slogan defund the police is the, is the best sure. uh, uh, slogan, right? Um, but, but the fact is that people mean different things by that. And a lot of people who use that phrase, they don't, they don't mean that we should have, like they're not anarchists, right? They're not saying right. we should have no law enforcement. They're just saying maybe there are some situations where um, it's not the best thing to have someone with a gun uh, show up to address whatever problem is going on. Yes. And so some resources could be diverted to um, other, uh, perhaps other uh, law enforcement type agents, perhaps other entities. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we could divert some resources to social services yeah. um, because sometimes someone showing up with a gun just isn't going, it's, it's, it's only going to make things worse. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It is an interesting conversation around those words, but like largely when people talk about defunding the police, it's not defunding a hundred percent. It's like you said, diverting funds into maybe um, mental health counselors to go out on, on calls either with police or before police um, mental health services in general, you know, helping those people when, when you have to go out on a call with them, helping them get the services that they need, um, social workers, all these things, because, you know, we really did take police officers who had a very specific purpose in our society and turn them into people who have to be social workers and mental health professionals and, um, you know, interventionists and, and all these things that they cannot be like, we cannot have one uh, profession handling what so many other people could handle better um, and, and help them with, you know, police officers you talk to are under tremendous amount of pressure because they're expected to be all of these things to the community that they shouldn't have to be. And so it's not serving them well, it's not serving the community well, um, especially not servicing, you know, marginalized, low income, black, and brown communities well um so and then you know then you have people who are more abolish the police and that would be kind of you know getting rid of any sort of law enforcement but that argument is not as as com- common or talked about as, as something like defunding the police is right yeah i have a couple of police officers in my family and and, a, and one a particularly close friend who's a police officer and the things that they're that are demanded of them are, n- are nuts i mean it's yeah. crazy the stuff that they're asked to do that they're yeah. not that first of all they're not they're just not trained to do and then and then when you look at the array of things that they're asked to do no one could be trained to do all of those things no one faith philosophy and politics family how y'all doing man i'm trey i'm sam and i'm rob and we're the co-host of the three black men podcast podcast about theology culture and the world around us got a lot of love for scott probably heard me on here a few times but i think we have some things for you over here so you can listen to us wherever you get your podcast spotify apple all them things (laughs) all of them (laughs) we in there now back to your regularly scheduled programming so the so the first part of your book you talk a lot about your uh, your experience in the uh, aftermath of the um, the shooting that you survived, mm-hmm. and um, I, I I cannot commend 
this enough to anyone who's who's listening. Uh, I, I can't commend it highly enough. Um, just just the um, what what I found particularly impactful was your struggle with here were the plans that I'd made for my life, and here's how I thought here's how I saw things going, and then um, here are pretty much in every way, here's how my life ended up going differently from uh, how I planned. And that, uh, those reflections I, I found really remarkable. Thank um, you. I wonder if you might talk a bit about that and then sort of as a follow-up or maybe relatedly, there was, there was a bit of, it was a bit of a journey from your experience there to the realization that perhaps you wanted to get involved in the push for gun reform. It wasn't, it's not as though the shooting happened and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, um, you know, be a crusader for gun reform yeah. or whatever. That, that, that was, that was a, a realization that happened over time. I, I wonder if you might talk about any of those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think people who don't know me, it's easy to think, oh, like, she was pro-gun and then she got shot and then she was anti-gun and now she's like crazy. <laughs> it's kind of what, what people think. Emotional. Um, but, yeah, emotional, <laughs> yes. Um, which like, I am emotional. Emotions are good. <laughs> like, yeah. why aren't you emotional is what I what I want to say to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up like in a very conservative home in uh, rural Southwest Virginia, and my family didn't have guns until I was older, but we were around a lot of people who did. And, and um, you know, whether or not you you owned guns personally, it, it was kind of that like, you know, God guns and whatever it is, like that kind of slogan mentality. So I was very pro-gun. Like I didn't ever have to experience gun violence before. I lived in a pretty safe community. Um, I lived about 30 minutes away from Virginia Tech when that shooting happened. And my husband and I both um, went to Virginia Tech. Um, but that was kind of my only frame of reference for gun violence near me. And I especially didn't have any idea about the gun violence happening like in my local community. I just didn't have to know about it. And so even after I got shot, I you know, everyone around me was like, oh, well, we need more guns, you know, gun, like if, you know, I got a lot of, well, if you had been able to have a gun at work, maybe you could have stopped this. And so I'm starting to think, well, how is it my fault? Like, how is this now my fault that I didn't have a gun at my work at a community college in case like this happened to me? And, um, and so I still kind of maintained that, like, well, guns are good and we need guns to defend ourselves, you know, et cetera. Um, but really, God used that time in my life to help me. I, see. I'm sorry, but this was even, this was after the shooting. Yeah. That you survived. You were you still thought, you know, guns are good. Like you, you hadn't yeah. really moved much at all. Okay. Yeah, okay. because, you know, my experience was the person who shot me was able to go buy his gun legally he passed a background check um you know he didn't bypass any laws or restrictions at that point that we knew it was well this was a legal gun purchase so i did not feel failed by uh, a lack of gun regulation or loopholes or anything i didn't feel failed by that so i didn't really have a point of reference to say well 
this sh- shouldn't have happened because of this. So it was kind of easy for me to maintain, well, you know, it's, it's just, it was just evil in the world that happened to me. It was just this evil action. And mm-hmm. as time went on, you know, shootings just kept happening. And I realized, wow, just because this awful thing happened to me, like, doesn't mean it's going to stop. It just keeps going. And, you know, I, the specific event that really, you know, I'd started kind of learning and, and I could feel myself shifting and it was kind of scary and I didn't really know what it meant. Um, but was the pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando because it happened on a Saturday night. We woke up the next morning, heard the news and we were heading to church. And I just thought, well, we're going to talk about this at church, right? Like, we will pray for these people, this community, you know, the pastors know me and know what happened to me. And like, of course this will be discussed. Like this is an insane tragedy. And then nothing was said. And it's not that it surprised me really, but it was just like, I can't do this anymore. This doesn't make sense. Like to witness this horrific suffering and act of violence and it not be something that we address even simply with a prayer on a Sunday morning. And, and so God had really been using the experience to show me himself as a different, um, a different God than what I knew growing up, you know, sort of a God of safety and provision and uh, comfort. And, and this God that I had to experience now was, was this God who's near to me in, in my suffering and who is with me even when I don't feel healed with me when I'm lonely and uh, with me when I'm experiencing injustice. And he used that to open my eyes to the injustice that I wasn't personally experiencing, but to say, this is out there. And like, this is the God I can be to these people. And this is who you can serve. And this is who, you know, you can be my hands and feet here. And so no longer could I know that God so closely and so tenderly and still say, oh, well, guns are really good and everyone should have them and we should have no regulations about them. It just, the pieces couldn't fit anymore. And it didn't make sense to keep trying. It just all felt wrong. And, and so that's when I just decided enough. I can't, this doesn't, this doesn't work. It doesn't compute in my mind. And uh, so I just started reading anything I could, reading studies, um, books, you know, listening to people who knew a lot more than I did, kind of getting involved in, in some conversations. And um, yeah, and, and then I, I started speaking out and doing what I could to kind of be an access point for people when it comes to gun violence, because as prevalent as it is, most people don't know personally someone who's been shot or, or killed, but I could be a face for people. And I could say, this is my story. And this is happening to thousands of people a year. Um, what can we do? What can we do about this? It's beautiful. I, I think that really comes through in the book. Um, that the, and this is why I sort of scoffed when you said uh, that people accused you of, you know, trading on emotion or something, which I mean, I'm sure that's just be, it's, it's simply because you're a woman. And that's what that's what people say to women when they don't like yeah. that say it's like, oh, you're just being emotional. No, but, yeah. but this thing that really comes out in the book is it's like, um, there's, it's not a straight line from your experience to 
uh, now your, uh, I, I guess I would characterize it as activism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a straight line at all, right? Yeah. It's, it's as, as though, uh, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm not seeing this correctly, but it seemed to me that there's this thing that happened to you and then, and then your experiences around that that you talk beautifully about. Um, and then um, it's sort of like that uh, experience sort of opened your eyes to what was happening to other people, yeah. right? And, and caused you to attend to what was happening to other people. And then it's the thing, the thing that's happening to other people is what uh, prompted you uh, to, to take your, your present course. Yeah. I, that, that's so, um, um, that's, that's so Christian. You know? Yeah. And what's the kind of ironic thing about it is that I felt even aware of, of that when, when I felt the kind of transformation happening with me. Um, because for a long time, what I had seen was people who are shot and, and sort of enter the activism space. People will say, oh, well, you're just a pawn. You know, the Democrats are using you like to, for their agenda. <laughs> Um, you know, that kind of language. Um, so I, I kind of recognize that, oh, people might see me like that. And so I really wanted to know what I was talking about. And I wanted to be very intentional with how I approached it. Um, and, and so I knew that that was, that would probably happen to me, but I thought, well, I just, I want to do everything I can to, so people know, like, no, I, I'm not being used. Like, this is important. I know what I'm talking about. I, I can do this. Like, I have a valuable experience to to share here. Um, and, and, you know, I think it became especially important to me because, you know, what happened to me, a school shooting, um, that's the stuff that makes the news, you know, a school shooting, a, a mass shooting, especially, you know, I'm a middle-class white lady. Like, that's a story. People talk about that. Um, but the most common types of gun violence are happening to marginalized people and they're happening in your local community and you might see it on the news. You might not, but most people don't know about it. Um, and, and no one, very little attention is being given to that type of gun violence. And so if I can talk about what happened to me and say, isn't this terrible? What happened to me? Like this really sucked. If you think that sucks, can't wait to tell you about, you know, all the, all the people that are suffering in your local community and the people that you need to know about that, that are really suffering and uh, are kind of being left in a cycle of, of trauma and suffering and gun violence. Um, you know, what can we do? What can we do? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I deeply care about this issue and I deeply care about the people that it's impacting. And I don't speak just to stir up fights or stir up controversy. You know, I, I do this because, man, I just see a better way. You know, yeah. there has to be a better, a better way. Yeah, wouldn't it be something if the church said, uh, instead, of, instead of Christians saying, um, hey, my gun rights, that's, that's, that's what's most important to me, right? Yeah. Uh, my rights. Uh, to this or that, be it guns or whatever, right? Um, but rather, I'm going to use whatever voice I have uh, on behalf of marginalized, dispossessed yeah. people uh, who no, who otherwise uh, no one's going to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 a lot of selfishness, I think. 
Um, and I say that as someone who is a is selfish. I'm a person like there's a lot of areas in my life when when I'm too selfish about things. But you know, so much of this is well, it's it's mine, and I like it, and I like having a gun, and I like this hobby. You know, I like my gun collection. I like it. I want it. Um, and there's very little thought giving to, well, how is this thing that I like affecting other people? And could I maybe give up a little of it if it meant keeping someone else safe, um, keeping harm from happening to someone else? Um, you know, how how is what I'm doing and my beliefs contributing to a larger problem? Um, and it's hard to do that, you know? It's hard um, to confront that within ourselves. But I think that's, you know, largely what, what God asks us to do. <laughs> um, Sort of, sort of a theme in Christianity. Yeah, yeah, but but it's ours, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We want it, and <laughs> it's you know it's hard. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Is there anything that uh, I should have asked you about that I haven't, or that you wanted to cover that I haven't? I don't think so. I think, you know, maybe the. Only other thing I was going to say, I think, you know, we were talking about the police stuff and even this idea of, you know, self-defense is, um, I think we've really have a manipulated view of, of how we value life and the types of crimes or instances where we deem it acceptable to, to take a life. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think of, and I, I, I write about this in the book, like back when we lived in Tennessee, there was a, a guy that had a gun in, in the Walmart parking lot and saw some people stealing stuff from the store, you know, shopping cart of stuff. Mm. Um, and he fired his gun twice in the parking lot, um, you know, in the middle of, of the day, people around, um, because people were stealing material items from from Walmart, not from even Walmart. Walmart. You know, a, a multi-billion-dollar corporation, like a few thousand. Do- I think they they ended up saying it was like thirteen hundred dollars worth of stuff, and no one was hurt. But people could have been hurt, and people could have died because of we decide like this person in that minute decided that that was a crime worth dying for. Um. And, and I think that that was just kind of one example of, of we've said, well, you know, this is worth using a gun for. Well, I think we, maybe we need to have a higher view of, of life versus material things and life versus, you know, whatever crime someone has committed. You know, a, a, a drug possession is, isn't a death sentence, you know, this, this kind of thing that um, just this view that we have and we've really like reduced life and the value of, of life when we, when we have this conversation, I think. Yeah. 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 There's, there's def- I think, uh, American, uh, there's a, a large proportion of, of American, um, I'll just say American evangelicals. Cause that's what I know. Yeah. Uh, who have a really, perverse view of um, 
property rights yeah. versus um, what, what they what they would characterize as you know a right to life. Yeah. Um, like, I I don't you shouldn't even I don't think you need to be a Christian to say like it's not okay to shoot someone for taking your TV, right? Yeah. Like, call, the, the, call the police. Try to get your TV back. Sure. Yes. But like, don't you don't shoot someone over television. You can't. That's not. You know, I don't yes. even think you need the Bible to get to get that far. But if you have the Bible, you should certainly understand that that's just nothing about that is acceptable. Well, that's kind of the thing I'm talking about here, right? Is that no. uh, if you take Democrats versus Republicans, you know, like our major political parties, which is the one that's less likely to describe themselves as Christians and more likely to say you shouldn't shoot someone over a TV? Because it's not the party that's calling themselves the party of life and family values. So you clearly don't need the Bible to do that. And I think that's like, we should be ashamed. Indeed. Indeed. And that's, yeah, that's kind of my goal here. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, so maybe you could talk a little bit, maybe, maybe we could um, just by way of summary or, or um, I guess, uh, wrap, wrapping things up, maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see as the connection between um, your efforts around gun reform and the more general, um, more general issues of how, um, I guess, predominantly white evangelicals approach issues of justice and, and politics. How, how do you see that as connected? Yeah, I think um, it can all sort of be traced back to a conversation about uh, individualism, individual rights versus the collective good and versus our responsibility to one another. Um, you know, as, as Christians, we are created to live in community and to care for one another. And, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly told the story of, of the Good Samaritan, you know, helping someone in need and being the person that says, I'm going to, I'm going to provide for your physical needs here. Um, and instead we sort of have a culture that first says, well, I want to do this to keep myself safe or cause I want to versus how does my action contribute to the good of others and my neighbor. And that might involve making some sacrifices to make sure other people um, are taken care of. I think that because in America we have access to so many individual rights and comforts and freedoms, whatever you want to, whatever language you want to use, it's really easy to forget that biblical mandate to care for others and to lay your, your life down for the sake of others and to consider your neighbor's needs greater than your own. Um, it's, it's easy to ignore that. Oh, it's just something the Bible says, no, it's really important. You know, it's really important. Um, kind of. And, our, yeah. And, and, it, and it's, and um, I think a lot of the folks we're talking about, uh, who I mean, it, it sounds like we're from similar subcultures. Right? Yeah. A lot of the folks we're talking about, who we know and love, yeah. right? Um, they would they would say, uh, but I but I give to charity, right? And I you know and 
And, uh, you know, if I see someone who needs a meal or something like I, you know, I, I help them out. And, and, and that's all true. And that's all good. They don't see the connection between, um, uh, as you say, you know, forfeiting some uh, individual freedoms or rights. Uh, uh, yeah, they don't, they don't see the connection between um, what we're called to do as Christians in the way of setting aside our, uh, our rights or our preferences, um, mm -hmm. and then how this might find expression in the kinds of laws that we advocate for. It's not just an individual thing, like good that you give to charity, good yeah. that you, that you help the poor people that you see around you. But there's also this matter of laws and public institutions and how they operate. Yeah. And, and you, you can't, you, it's not as though you can just set aside your, your Christian convictions when you go into the voting booths. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, you know, real change, real, um, impact with, you know, voting and laws, it's not a, a checkbox, you know, it's not a to-do list. It's, it's something that, you know, I can go out and give money to a homeless person on the street with very little effect on my life. You know, I can toss five bucks out the window. I don't have to think about that person again. I can check the box. So oh, I did something good today. Um, but real change and real, um, action is going to take a little bit more of us um it's going to take some thoughtful consideration and it's going to it's going to make us a, a little uncomfortable and uh we have a real resistance to to being uncomfortable and um you know god doesn't call us to be comfortable <laughs> um you know and the way i see it if someone else is hurting i'm hurting too you know if mm -hmm. if this is someone else's problem it's my problem too cuz that person is my neighbor and we, we live in community and God made them in his image just as I made in his image. And so I carry that person with me into the voting booth. What is that per how does that person affect me? Um, and how can I use uh, my power, my privilege, um, my platform to, to care for them beyond, you know, tossing a $5 bill out the window or, you know, uh, contributing my tax deductible donation to a charity of choice, you know, let's, let's get uncomfortable. Let's, let's confront some of these things. And, you know, my main goal here is, is not really to change people's minds. Although I, I would love to help someone, um, make a shift in themselves if, if that's, if that's what's going to happen. But really my job and what I view this book as is a way to hopefully get someone to, to consider thoughtfully what they think about guns and gun rights and gun reform, because I think often guns are something people grow up with one way or the other. Um, their family's anti-gun or, or their family's pro-gun, and they might not have actually thought about it. They might not have actually considered it. And if someone um, can read my book and and give it time and, and think about what I've said and, and still say, you know what, I don't think I've changed my mind. I, I've thought about it, but I still believe this. Thank you. Thank you for reading my book. Thank you for being thoughtful. And if you read my book and say, oh, wow, I didn't know, like I've, I've done a 180. I've totally changed my mind. You know, I'll say, oh, I'm so glad, <laughs> you know, let's, what, what, what can we do now? Um, so I really just want to, offer a way for people to to really think about it it's it's too important it's it's too big it's doing too much damage to 
um, kind of just live in a passive state about, I think. Beautifully said. Well, well, Taylor, thank you so much for your time and thank you for, um, for this conversation. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Of course. Of course. Thank you.